So we're in Revelation 17, and we're going to look at the first six verses tonight. Revelation 17 gives us the depiction of Babylon the Great and of the beast upon which she rides. And we're going to deal first with these six verses that show us what Babylon the Great looks like, the woman that rides the beast. And then next week, well, we will be off. We'll, we'll have the M3 celebration, and so we'll not meet together here. But then on the following week, the 24th, we'll meet starting at 5.30. So that will be a change. No other grow groups are meeting. And so throughout the summer, we'll meet at 5.30. And we'll walk through chapters, the rest of chapter 17 um, that week and consider the beast that the angel describes and helps us to understand So let's read these six verses together. John writes, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. In chapter 16, we saw with rapid succession the outpouring of the seven bowls of the wrath of God, the last of which was accompanied by a divine pronouncement. It is done, the voice said, which was to say the leveling of justice against those who dwell on the earth by the king of all the earth is done. The judgment of the seventh bowl brought worldwide destruction through an unprecedented earthquake. The totality of that destruction was described by John as the splitting of the great city into three parts. But there it was clear that the great city, which John called Babylon the Great, was not just a city, but a global empire. The last expression of Satan-oriented domination in the world. The fall of which caused the cities of the nations to fall. As John watched the great city empire of Babylon fall, he interpreted this as a sign of God's justice, writing, God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. John first introduced us to the idea of Babylon the great in chapter 14 and verse 8, where the second of three angels announced, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, 
She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. There we noted that Babylon the Great is not one city or even one empire opposed to God and the Lamb, but is a recurring manifestation of the kingdom of this world. We might say Babylon the Great is the Roman Empire. Babylon the Great is the empire of the Medes and the Persians. Babylon the Great is Red China. Babylon the Great is the Soviet Union. Babylon the Great is the Nazi regime. Because Babylon the Great is every system, every organized effort to oppose God and the Lamb and to draw those who dwell on the earth to the worship of Satan. And Babylon the Great will appear one final time at the end of days in a worldwide way. At the end of days, there will be one final manifestation of the kingdom of this world. Babylon the Great will rise one more time to draw those who dwell on the earth under her power, directing that power toward the beast of the abyss, who we know is the beast of the sea, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, but ultimately falling beneath the weight of God's wrath and causing all those who have been made rich by her to perish as well. All of this imagery comes back into play in chapter 17 and 18 as John expounds upon the fall of Babylon the Great. These chapters are not the next steps of, in the judgment of God against the world, but are contained within the last bold judgment that we saw in chapter 16. John begins by saying, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. From chapter 1 in verse 1, John told us that this revelation was concerned with his being shown and his showing his readers the things that must soon take place. In chapter 4 in verse 1, he was bid by a trumpeting voice from heaven, the same voice that in chapter 1 and verse 10 had sounded to him while he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And there in chapter 4, that voice told him to come up here through the door standing open in heaven so that he might be shown what must take place after this. Now in chapter 17 and verse 1, John is no longer being shown the judgment of the great prostitute excuse me, is being shown the judgment of the great prostitute. That these things are being revealed or made known to John is a reminder that they are already known by God. God remains in control. He holds the world fast in his hand. He permits rebellion, but only for a time, knowing the moment and the means by which he will crush that rebellion. It may often seem that Babylon the Great will never be brought to her end, but God shows her judgment in order to offer reassurance to those who have bought from God those priceless riches that accord with faith and to warn those who have sold their souls to Babylon that they might hold the passing riches of this world. The angel is going to show John the judgment of the great prostitute. The word judgment here is the word krima. It can be translated a judgment, a verdict. A condemnation. And therefore, it is sometimes translated punishment. 
because it can refer not just to the declaration of guilt as opposed to innocence, but also to the sentence that accords with that declaration. The judgment here is against the great prostitute, we're told. John describes this prostitute as being seated on many waters. John's readers would have been familiar with the image of prostitution as symbolic of the immorality and idolatry that often characterized ancient Israel. This is prostitution. This, this prostitution is made clear throughout the writings of the prophets, perhaps nowhere more so than in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 12, where the Lord says, My people inquire of a piece of wood, an idol, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. The symbol of the prostitute as a description of Israel's idolatry and immorality was meant to rouse her from her stupor and to cause her to see how far she had fallen from what she really was, namely God's bride. Remember that the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 62, verses 4 and 5, that the day would come when the people of Israel and her land would no longer be termed desolate, or forsaken, but instead they would be called Hephzibah and Beulah, that is, married and, and a bride taken to God himself. God wants his people to understand that he has made them his chosen possession, but they have lived, they have lived for the world and not for him. With that in the background, John is invited to consider the destruction of the great prostitute as opposed to the deliverance of the spotless bride, the former belonging to the Antichrist, the latter belonging to Jesus. Throughout chapters 17, 18, and 19, we will see the prostitute, Babylon the Great, contrasted with the bride invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we have to see that that's really what John is pointing us to. There is, there is a, a stark contrast between these two images. John is told that the prostitute is seated on many waters. This detail clarifies that we're not talking about ancient Rome or a contemporary manifestation of the Roman Empire. Some people would see here that we're talking about the Catholic Church as a manifestation of the Roman Empire in a modern world. But that's not the case. Ancient Rome was not built upon a series of waters or rivers, one river in ancient Rome. Instead, what we're being drawn to is the image of ancient Babylon that was built on a series of canals. Osborne writes that this is possibly an allusion to Jeremiah 51 and verse 13, where Babylon is described as, You who live by many waters an allusion to the city's location on the river Euphrates, surrounded by a network of canals and irrigation streams from that great river. Ford sees that this prostitute is contrasted with the woman who had given birth to the male child back in chapter 12. Remember, in chapter 12, the woman image there, she was, she was giving birth to a male child. The male child was delivered. There was a great war in heaven. The dragon was cast down to the earth. And then there was a, an effort on the part of the dragon to consume and destroy the woman that had given birth to the child. 
So much so that the dragon uh, tried to drown her and the earth, we are told in chapter 12, verses 15 and 16, the earth opened up and consumed the water so that she was not consumed. And Ford says maybe we're to see here a, a contrast with that and this woman that sits upon the waters. The angel tells John in chapter 17 and verse 15 that the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, revealing that the great prostitute is not one person, one city, or even one country, but is a representation of worldwide opposition to God, opposition which entices citizens and countries to engage in idolatry and sexual immorality in the pursuit of profitability and peace, but which will prove destructive in the end. The idolatrous and immoral ways of those that Babylon controls is made clear in verse 2. The angel tells John that the prostitute has committed sexual immorality with the kings of the earth and has caused the intoxication of the dwellers on earth with the wine of her sexual immorality. We should note something here. When the New Testament talks about where we dwell or where we live, typically for those who are the people of God, the, the church, the saints of God, believers in the Lord Jesus, typically, not always, but typically it uses a word that means a, a passing home, a home that is, that is in transit. We, are, we have a temporary dwelling in this world. So it's interesting that the word for dwellers here is the word that refers to a permanently established dwelling. In other words, the repeated message of the revelation and now of the angel showing the judgment of the great prostitute is that those who dwell on the earth, the unbelievers, have made this world their home. They've determined that this world and its fleeting kingdom is where they will dwell forever. They have put down roots in this world. And those roots will one day be plucked up and burned by God himself. The angel carried John away in the spirit, we're told. The spirit is essential to John's experience of this revelation. In chapter 1, in verse 10, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day when he heard a voice that bid him to write his vision in a book for the churches of Asia. In chapter 4, verse 2, he was in the Spirit when he was transported into heaven to see the vision of the one seated on the throne. And we will see in chapter 21, in verse 10, John is carried away in the Spirit to see the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Here, the angel carried John away in the Spirit into a wilderness. George Eldon Ladd writes, There seems to be no particular symbolic significance in the fact that John received the vision in the wilderness. The heavenly woman fled from the dragon into the wilderness, chapter 12, verse 6, verse 14, that she might be protected by God from the wrath of the dragon. Here, the wilderness seems to be simply a solitary place where John could receive his vision. And then he makes this note that I thought was particularly good. He said, a wilderness in the biblical idiom was not necessarily a dry, barren place. We're, I think, accustomed to think of wilderness as a desert. But he says it could simply be an uncultivated region with a sparse population. It could be the Black Belt of Alabama. I don't know. 
In the wilderness, John saw a woman sitting on the scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. This woman is the great prostitute of chapter 17 and verse 1. And so we know from the outset she's not really a woman, but is a symbol of the last global empire of evil opposed to the rule and reign of God and promoting the rule and reign of the dragon, Satan himself. We were introduced to this beast in chapter 11, verse 7, as the beast that rises from the bottomless pit. And in chapter 13, in verse 1, is the beast that rises out of the sea. The beast is the false, unholy parody of Jesus himself. Paul called this figure the man of lawlessness. In his epistles, John would term him the Antichrist. This beast is scarlet. The color evokes both connection and contrast. In chapter 12, in verse 3, a sign appeared in heaven of a great red dragon. You might remember that the word red there is the word pyros. It's the word for fire. It's a different word that's used here of the beast upon which the woman sits. He is scarlet. A different word, but a similar color. Glad says that's probably to use to in intimate a relationship to his ultimate master, who is Satan himself. The color also evokes a contrast, compares to the color of the dragon, but it contrasts with the color of the horse upon which the lamb and his armies ride, namely white. And then there was one other point that I, I just found this really interesting. Ford writes, that not only is there a contrast between the scarlet color of the beast and the white brilliance of the horse upon which Jesus rides, and not only is there a comparison between the scarlet color of the beast and the fiery red of the dragon, but there's also something here about the nature of the color itself. She says that some colors are pure. Other colors are mixed. They are combinations of pigments. And scarlet was a combined or an, a mixed pigment. And she says that probably is another way of showing us the contrast between this beast and Jesus himself. Because Jesus is pure, brilliant, radiant in white. But the beast has a mixed or a, an amalgamated color. We're supposed to see here the starkness of this beast's color and realize it is not the lamb. We know that this beast is the same as the beast of the abyss and of the sea because John writes that it had seven heads and ten horns. The same that he wrote about the beast from the sea in chapter 13 and verse 1. The angel interprets the heads and horns of the beast in verses 9 to 14. So we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. For the moment, let's think about the image of the woman who sits upon it. John writes that the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Robert Mount summarizes, he says that the woman who sits astride the scarlet beast is clothed in luxurious garments and adorned with gold and costly jewels. Purple and scarlet signify the luxury and splendor of ancient Rome. Both dyes were expensive to extract. Purple was often used for royal garments. 
and scarlet was a color of magnificence. The word for adorned here is literally the word for for gilding. If we read this literally, it would be that the woman was gilded with gold. The overarching contrast in this section is to the destru- is the destruction of Babylon the Great, who is the great prostitute and the woman sitting on the beast with the bride of the Lamb. So consider the description of the bride against the description of the woman sitting on the beast. John writes in chapter 19 of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he says in chapter 19 and verse 8, that it was granted to her, that is the bride of the Lamb, the people of God, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That took me back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. You remember how the Apostle Paul, in writing about the way that we should present ourselves in the body of Christ, offers instruction for how women should adorn themselves And he says that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, that is, with good works, Paul says. Paul's point to Timothy, and I think his point continuing into today, is that when we gather as the people of God, what should be attractive about us, uh, men and women alike, what should be attractive about us is not our outward appearance, but the works that we give ourselves to. We should indulge ourselves in service to one another. We should do the things that are godly. We should seek to be holy and pure and blameless in our lives. When someone makes an assessment of us, the first thing that they should say is that that is a godly person. That is someone who is clothed in righteousness. That is someone who makes a a significant effort to walk closely to Jesus. And so Paul is saying to a world that understood what the difference was between holiness and haughtiness, do not be haughty. And this woman on the beast is haughty. The message is that the woman sitting on the beast is not godly because she is covered in the fashions of this world. The shallow adornments that entice those who have long given themselves to the things of earth rather than to the things of God. The woman was holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Historically, God used Babylon, the real Babylonian empire from the 5th century B.C., to bring about judgment against his people Judah. However, God being committed to saving a remnant for his people brought judgment against Babylon in the end and allowed the Medo-Persian empire to overtake them as a means of freeing his people and returning them to the land that he had given them. In Jeremiah chapter 51 and verse 1, God speaks through the prophet to declare that he will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon. And then the prophet tells us how God sees Babylon. He says in chapter 51 and verse 7, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. 
that's exactly in the background of what John is writing about this future Babylon the Great. Grant Osborne writes that while in Jeremiah, Babylon is the gold cup, here in Revelation 17, the depravity of Babylon provides the contents of the gold cup. The wealth of the great prostitute Babylon the Great intoxicates the people of the earth, but leads them to the wrath of God. That whoring woman, Babylon the Great, is the final expression of evil opposition to God and the Lamb. She exists to glorify the dragon by drawing in those who dwell on the earth to his worship. That is why she is alluring and enticing. She is depicted in all the finery that might catch the attention of an unguarded passion. She is depicted with all the wealth that might catch the attention of unprotected greed. The symbol of her works is the wine of abominations. She is drunk on the accursed things, the things that God has condemned, the impurities of her sexual immorality, both figuratively as idolatry and literally as fornication itself. The bride of the Lamb is invited to the marriage supper which the Lamb has prepared for her. But Babylon the Great must pour her own glass of wine and set her own table. John wrote that on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now it's clear. If it wasn't clear before, now it is very clear that the prostitute of chapter 17 in verse 1 is the woman who wrote on the scarlet beast in verse 3 and is Babylon the Great, who we already learned about back in chapter 14. Many posit that the presence of a name on her forehead is a reference to prostitutes in ancient Rome wearing headpieces that revealed their names. There's not enough evidence for that to substantiate this as a widespread practice, so it's unlikely that that is what John is trying to evoke for his readers and hearers. Instead, we should consider the presence of marks and names used earlier in the Revelation. George Eldon Ladd writes, The saints of God were sealed on their foreheads with the divine name. Chapter 7 and verse 3, chapter 9 and verse 4, chapter 14 and verse 1. And the followers of the beast also were sealed upon their foreheads and upon their hands with his name and the number of his name. Chapter 13 and verse 17. And in the new earth, the redeemed will have the name of God written on their foreheads. Chapter 3 and verse 12, chapter 22 and verse 4. So the name or mark on the forehead speaks to identity. And that is certainly the case for the woman. John writes that she has a name of mystery, which is not to say that we do not know who she, who she is, as though her name is a mystery. But as is the case throughout the New Testament, to say that her name is being disclosed or revealed, the mystery is being made known to us. Her mysterious name is Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. The fall of this woman, Babylon the Great, was already announced in chapter 14 and verse 8. So we know that we are dealing here with a foe that will be soon defeated. John wants us to see how vast is her destructive force and her immoral influence. Osborne writes, in the New Testament, the phrase, son of, refers to one's primary characteristic, 
as if to say the son of righteousness. So to be called the mother of means not only that it characterizes one, but that one has reproduced it in others. Thus the unholy Roman Empire of the Antichrist has seduced the other nations into immorality and idolatry, as well as committing such heinous sins herself. Babylon the Great, as a system of evil opposition to God and the Lamb, will insist on multiplying and filling the earth, but the fruitfulness of her womb will be evil, heinous, abominable, unconscionable. She will promote chaos and poison order everywhere she goes. She will insist on subduing every person who is not sealed with the Spirit, whose name is not written in the Lamb's book, and she will appear to be widely successful until the very end of human history when the outpouring of the wrath of the Lamb will cause her to crumble within and give way without. John saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The first introduction of Babylon the Great in chapter 14 announced that her fall was because she had made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The same is borne witness to in chapter 17 and verse 2 when John wrote that the great prostitute with her, the kings of the earth, have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. It is clear that Babylon the Great is a system intent on satisfying herself, achieving her own goals, and doing whatever is necessary to accomplish it. Now we know what she's trying to achieve and how she will be satisfied. Babylon was out for blood. The reason that Babylon the Great is enticing and alluring is because she wants as many earth dwellers, unbelievers, under her sway to increase her power and authority as she wages war against the saints of God. John told us as much regarding the beast in chapter 13 and verse 7, writing, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. The woman is engaged in the same work as the beast. She is warring against the church, the people of God. When the fifth seal was broken in chapter 6 and verse 10, we heard the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In the pouring out of the third bowl in chapter 16, verses 4 to 6, the justification for turning the fresh water into blood was that those who dwell on the earth have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. Throughout the ages, the people of God have faced an onslaught at the hands of evil, wicked men. John wants us to know why. There is an organized effort to destroy God's people. The dragon, Satan himself, has worked throughout the ages, particularly the age of the church, to attack God's people. He has marshaled the beast and Babylon, the Antichrist and his global empire, to entice and attract the unbelievers of earth and then employ them in the accomplishment of his mission, namely the destruction of the church. So focused on this work is this global empire that it is said she is drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. It is all-consuming, inhibiting, 
life-altering. Persecution is her pastime, genocide her gain. Babylon the Great will make a hobby of halting the advancement of the church of Jesus Christ at the end of days, though it will only be for a short time. The destruction, the description of the saints is a reminder of the true cost of discipleship. We are called to be martyrs, that is, witnesses of Jesus in this life, fully aware that we may be required to be witnesses unto death as well. John then writes of his reaction to the woman he has been shown. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. That phrase marveled greatly is literally amazed with great amazement or wondered with great wonder. It's, it's an intensifying of John's reaction. And Robert Mounts writes, The revolting and gory spectacle causes John to wonder with a great wonder. When he is taken to the desert, John had expected to see the judgment of the prostitute, but up to this point, she appears triumphant. Ostentatiously attired and adorned in wealth, she sits upon the scarlet beast and advertising her base trade and intoxicated with the blood of her victims. The true nature of the empire is at last fully revealed. Grant Osborne writes, the root is used often in the New Testament of this word for amazed. It's used often to talk about the astonishment people feel at the great deeds such as the miracles of Jesus. Here, it is both wonder at the incredible vision and at the same time confusion at the imagery. So we have to be clear, it is not that, draw, that John is drawn in to the allure of this woman. It is that he is startled by it. For thousands of years, the wool has been pulled over the eyes of humanity. We have seen wickedness and decay and destruction and death and judgment and turmoil and trouble at every hand. And we've wondered why. Why do these things abound? Why do these things seem to be victorious in our world? Now John knows why. There is truly a system of evil at work. And that system of evil is Babylon the Great. It rears its head throughout the story of human history, and it will, it will rear its head one final time at the end of days. It will rest upon the beast. That is to say that the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the beast of the sea, the beast of the abyss, will be its functioning hero. It will, he will be its leading man. But Babylon the Great is far more than just this one Antichrist. It is all Antichrist. It is all the spirit of opposition to God and to the land. Babylon the Great has one endeavor, to see that all those unbelievers are drawn under its sway in order to give praise to Satan and to detract from the worship of God Almighty. One of the things that we've talked about many times before is that when the end of days come, people will not 
have to fight very hard against the enticement of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the beast. He will be alluring and enticing, and everyone will give way to him. All those who have not been sealed by the Spirit of God, all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book. And the reason we've talked about so many times, but it is worth repeating here, the reason that people will give way so easily is because they already are. Babylon the Great already exists in our world. There are already these systems of enticement and allurement. There are already the riches of this world. There are already the enticements of sexual immorality. There are already the various ways that idolatry rears its head. And men and women who are not sealed by the Spirit of God give way over and over and over again. So we say this not because we should fear for ourselves. Because if we are sealed by the Spirit, if we are counted among God's people, if we've been measured in His temple... If our names have been written in his book, we have no reason to fear. But we make note of this so that we can understand more the world in which we live and recognize, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, that the God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. That is why they believe not. We are in a spiritual war, brothers and sisters. There is a real enemy The God of this world, the devil, longs to kill and steal and destroy. And he is doing it rapidly. So let us be a people who hold fast to Jesus Christ. Who proclaim the clear truth of the gospel. And who hold out an offer of pardon and peace and freedom from sin for all who would believe.